John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 116 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a truly conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter at Individual, the number one pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Much of this uh, episode of the podcast will be devoted to a fantastic interview with the author of a brand new book called The Drudge Revolution. He is Matthew Lyshak, and this is a book where I am quoted fairly extensively about the topic of the history of Matt Drudge, the man who is the founder of The Drudge Report, which has been so influential in American politics and which I truly do believe is the reason why Donald Trump is currently president, even though now The Drudge Report appears to be campaigning uh, very uh, forcefully against him. Uh, We'll talk to uh, Matthew Lyshak about that and a whole bunch of other things related to his book, The Drudge Revolution, in just a few minutes. But first, I want to talk about the, the news of the last week. And we've discussed this so many times in the past on this podcast about how desensitized we are, dangerously desensitized, about the insanity of the entire Trump administration. Correct. That there are stories that if they had been with any other president, we would be discussing them for weeks, if not months at a time. But uh, with Donald Trump, they are quickly forgotten because something else happens. Some other outrage takes away our focus and we just move on. Uh, Well, that happened uh, a couple of times in the last week. It's probably happened almost every single week since we've started this podcast, but particularly dramatically over the last week. Do you remember, because it was almost a week ago, 
and it might be difficult to remember at this point, do you remember when the president of the United States tweeted that the general election should be delayed? Do you remember that? That the president of the United States, who is losing in the polls, which, by the way, why would you want the election delayed if you were not losing in the polls, which he claims are not accurate, but that's, that's, that pales in comparison to the idea that the president of the United States is uh, declaring without any authority and without any real legitimate reason that the election should be delayed. You cannot be serious. I mean, but that's what the president of the United States did. Now, he did get a lot of criticism, even from some conservatives, even the Federalist Society, which has been very pro-Trump, uh, came out against this idea and even implied that uh, he should be impeached for the suggestion. And he quickly seemingly backed down, although not really in a typical uh, Trump fashion. He's always trying to find some out and some claim that this was all part of him playing uh, chess instead of you know, shoots and ladders. But uh, the reality is that this is uh, outrageous. It's outrageous, one, because it's not within his authority, and two, because there's no legitimate reason for it, and, uh, and three, because it's, it smacks of a dictator. Uh, I mean, that's what, it, that's what it feels like. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable that we go from you know, this not uh, really being an issue to all of a sudden the President of the United States saying, I think the election should be delayed. Boy, that escalated quickly. Are you not entertained? I mean, that's that's insanity. I mean, that's insanity. But there is a bigger issue here than even just his uh, tweet that this should be done. This is about creating a narrative. And, and it's always difficult in this realm to interpret what Trump is doing because you never know how much of this is uh, by design and how much of this is just happenstance because, after all, he's not very bright uh, I love the poorly educated. And, and so you, I never know how much thinking to attribute to him. I do think it's quite possible that he is creating a narrative here that will do a couple of things. One, it will most importantly excuse a loss. That's what he's trying to do here. It, that's always the most important thing for him to avoid humiliation. So if he's saying that mail-in ballots are not trustworthy and that therefore we need to delay the election uh, to get this situation straightened out. And then we don't delay the election and he loses. He has at least a theoretically plausible narrative on which to hold on to that. He didn't really get beat, uh, that this election was not fair and therefore the results should not be trusted. And uh, and which, by the way, <laughs> is about one of the worst things that a president of the United States can do is to to cause there to be distrust in the result of an election. Now, that's that's actually the more benign theory, believe it or not, about what Trump might be doing. That This is an, a way for him to create a personal excuse for uh, what is increasingly an inevitable loss. There is something even worse that could be going on here. Uh, and this might be giving him too much credit. But I think it is possible, and this was actually suggested to me by, by a friend on Twitter, uh, and, I, and I thought about it, and I thought, you know what, this, there might be something to this, uh, that, the reality, that Trump believes that these mail-in ballots are going to be bad for him, and the mail-in ballots are going to take longer to count. And so if, let's just say, the election is somewhat close on election night, 
And then in the coming days, states where Trump thinks he's going to win or at least has a shot at winning, all of a sudden drift away from him. Then he can really claim, and his followers will believe it, that this was proof of something not being all on the up and up, that there was corruption here, that it was these mail-in ballots that ended up costing him the election. And then, if it's close enough, then we're in really dangerous territory. Really dangerous territory, because if he's building this narrative for the purpose of being able to tell his followers that Joe Biden is not a legitimately elected president, then, you know, all bets are off. All bets. Are, that's one of the worst. I've always said the worst scenario from an election standpoint, this was well before the whole virus situation, but I've always said the worst scenario here is what happens if Trump loses a close election and refuses to accept the results? And, you know, his his followers always say, oh, that's he's just pulling the media's legs. He's just trolling. Really? He's trolling when he says he wants to delay the election. I'm sorry. You, we have to take this seriously now because the ramifications are potentially uh, devastating. Now, the other story that uh, should have gotten a lot of play did get a lot of play. <laughs> Um, but I, I doubt that most Americans are even aware of it because the, the news cycle is so cluttered, is that it was revealed that the, the city of New York is investigating the Trump organization for fraud. And the reason why this came out was because of the brilliant maneuver by the Trump people to try to, to keep his tax returns from getting into the hands of prosecutors in New York. They uh, they have gone to great lengths to get the courts to stop that from happening. Well, in order to justify why they want Trump's tax returns, the authorities in New York had to reveal that the reason is we're investigating the Trump organization for fraud. Uh, and that this apparently is an extensive investigation with all sorts uh, of very nasty allegations. Now, allegations are allegations. Uh, we don't know what is true or not, uh, but in a normal presidency, in a normal presidency, that would be something that would be an earthquake type story. Uh, and instead, uh, it has not been. Now, maybe it will be if and when we ever get uh, more details. Uh, but the reality is that's a big deal. Of course, you would have thought that it was a big deal when the incoming president of the United States settled a fraud allegation against Trump University for twenty five million dollars. <laughs> Uh, but that really wasn't that big of a deal either for some bizarre reason. I mean, it, it, we've just gotten to a very strange place in the world. It's just flat out ridiculous. I mean, it really, guys? I mean, is this really what it's come down to? Really? We're better than that. No, no. This is who we are. We, we, don't, even, it doesn't, we don't even blink an eye now uh, when the president of the United States, his company, is uh, under investigation uh, for massive fraud. Uh, as far as uh, Trump himself, he stepped into an embarrassing situation yesterday that I found to be particularly interesting uh, because of my uh, own family connection to the place where he was trying to describe, and that is Yosemite National Park. I've, I've talked on this podcast about how all, every, basically every year, at least every year we can, we spend a week in Yosemite because it's my wife's favorite place. And the president was discussing a massive, incredibly expensive, massive new preservation program for national parks, obviously Yosemite uh, being among, if not the most uh, foremost, uh, national park in America. And while describing 
uh, all the great things that this uh, this new uh, presidential edict was going to do, uh, he had a big problem pronouncing the word Yosemite. Now, to be clear, I butcher names all the time. Butcher usually the names of people. Uh, but there's a difference between butchering the name of a person who I maybe not wasn't even expecting to, to mention and having a planned speech where you are touting and you're reading, you're reading about this great thing you've just done, where if you were even remotely part of uh, the discussions, the word Yosemite would have come up numerous times. And in your research, you would have been realized, you know, I'm going to talk about Yosemite. Not to mention that Yosemite is really, if only for Yosemite Sam, is a very common word in the American lexicon. And yet, somehow, yesterday, it came out like this. They gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias. Yosemites. Yosemites. He tried it not once, but twice. Yosemites. They gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias. So he not only butchers the name that everybody knows, but he makes it sound like some sort of racial slur, doesn't he? Yo, Semites. <laughs> Somehow that sounded anti-Jewish to me. But <laughs> and this is a guy who's trying to make one of the major issues in the campaign, the fact that Joe Biden uh, is losing it and has some sort of uh, dementia. Uh, not a good look. And he was rightfully uh, ridiculed for it uh, online. As far as the virus is concerned, uh, the death rate continues to edge up, but it's still nowhere near what it was, as I continually have said, it would not uh, be uh, back in April. I would like to believe, and I'm still trying to be as optimistic as possible, that as I have said previously, this bump in the daily death rate in America will and may be already leveling off, and that eventually, how long, I don't know, probably at least a few weeks, will eventually go back down. What we're seeing now is that Florida, Texas, and California, three massive states, three of our, really our three largest states as far as population is concerned, uh, are, are all experiencing what might be referred to as a second wave. In most cases, it's really just the first wave being delayed. And you know, this, this issue of a first wave, second wave, what have you, is really becoming a bigger and bigger topic around the world because what we're seeing now is that a lot of places that thought that they had defeated the virus are now seeing the virus come back almost as if you really don't have full control over what happens with the virus that it appears to me and I, I will you know I'm incredibly open-minded and when I get new facts I, I change my mind I do believe that we have seen from the data over the last several weeks, the first strong evidence that government lockdowns do have an impact. And that impact is to delay, to delay the impact of the virus. But it does not eradicate it. There is no way, it's now very clear, and we've seen this in places like Australia and Japan and Israel, and yet not in Sweden yet. That's what the interesting part of this is. Not in Sweden yet. And if that holds, that would go a long way in showing what lockdowns really do, which is to delay but not change the inevitable. That you cannot 
without a virus, without a vaccine, I and mean, even knows who heck knows when and if that's going to ever happen, you cannot totally dodge the virus. You are really just delaying the inevitable. And what we're seeing here in America is that we're seeing almost all of our deaths. It's very similar to what happened at the the beginning of this. Almost all of our deaths were New York, northern New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Now, almost all of our deaths are Florida, Texas, and California. And I would like to believe, and I do believe, looking at the data, that the virus is largely, though not totally, uh, burning itself out, much like it has done in Sweden. It's just taken longer here because we had more government lockdowns uh, than Sweden did, and we're a much, much larger and more populated country than Sweden. And so, uh, you know, we don't know. We're not going to know for for sure for far too long a period of time because by the time all the facts are in, all the decisions will have already been made. That's one of the many frustrating aspects of this. But it is now very obvious in this country that the goalposts have been completely and totally moved from where they were at the beginning of this whole uh, nightmare. Remember, uh, you know, the goalposts at the beginning of this were flatten the curve, get our hospitals ready. That was the deal. Flatten the curve for a few weeks, whether it's 15 days or a month or whatever, flatten the curve, delay this so we can get everybody ready for what's going to be a disaster. And we did that. And other than in New York and uh, northern New Jersey and a couple other uh, smaller places, that disaster was largely averted. Was it bad? Yeah, but it was not catastrophic. And then somehow, flatten the curve became save all lives. Save all lives at all costs. And then somehow, save all lives at all costs became prevent all cases at all costs. Prevent all cases at all costs, which is impossible, as we're now learning, based upon the way the virus has come back uh, in many places across the world and in and in this country. And then it's all been wait until a vaccine. Flatten the curve somehow and the greatest bait and switch of all time turned into wait until a vaccine. And now we're even hearing from experts, so-called, that no, 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 it's not even wait till a vaccine. That even that's not going to be good enough. You cannot be serious. How the hell did this happen? I mean, we'll, we'll do full podcast episodes in the future about how we got from flatten the curve to even a vaccine is no longer good enough for us to get back to any semblance of normal. But I just want to mention that we are clearly, clearly now in, the, in, uh, in just a bizarro world uh, where uh, all, all the goalposts have been moved out of the stadium. And, and the so-called medical experts are, are putting the, the, the foot on the gas pedal. I mean, now we went from no masks at the beginning from the experts to mandatory masks everywhere, and now even masks might not be enough. Dr. Fauci has actually now said that goggles are something that might even be required in America. Goggles might be required and a vaccine might not be good enough. It's just flat out ridiculous. I can, it's, it's, it would be uh, laughable if it wasn't so serious. And you're not even allowed to criticize this in the mainstream media. Blasphema! I mean, that, that's the way you get responded to. Blasphemy! He said it again! And I know this firsthand. 
I mean, we are in very, very dangerous territory with regard to the restrictions on free speech and the ability to get at anything that is counter to the prevailing accepted narrative. And that narrative has gone batshit crazy. I mean, at this point, there's almost nothing government could do that that the media would cause any backlash against other than maybe a couple of shows on Fox News Channel, which aren't enough to make a real impact. I mean, New York City is now having checkpoints, checkpoints to enter the city to make sure that you don't have coronavirus. I mean, the hypocrisy there, considering what happened when New York was was experiencing a major outbreak is, is stunning. But I mean, this is this. Many people don't believe that it's legal or constitutional, but it smacks of show us your papers I mean, it smacks of, of Nazism. And, and speaking of Nazism, how amazing is it that the country, at least recently, that has had the strongest protest against these draconian measures is Germany. That, that when Germany has had over a million people protest in the streets over the weekend in Berlin. And no one, you know, the media basically tried to ignore it. Uh, I mean, I'll be fascinated to see what happens to the numbers in Germany, but Germany has done exceedingly well with the numbers in recent months, but they haven't let up. And in Germany, obviously, there's a huge portion of the population there that is thinking, hold on a second. When is this ever going to end? We did what you told us to do. The, the virus has largely been eradicated with some exceptions, uh, I mean, but we've got to move on with life. And, you know, when the Germans are seeing fascism and fighting back against it, and even, by the way, uh, you know, uh, using uh, anti-Nazi signs as part of a protest, you know, we've really reached a level of of insanity here. And I I say that as a German who was actually born in Heidelberg, Germany, when my father was stationed there for the U.S. military. But we are in very, very strange and dangerous times. And coming back here to the United States, it is clear that the vast majority of schools are not going to reopen. Uh, the college football, now we, we now know, is basically hanging by a thread. The University of Connecticut was the first major program today to announce that they're not going to play a season, saying that the virus poses, quote, an unacceptable level of risk. And I found this to be particularly amazing, that a game that often causes major injury Lifelong injury, sometimes death, that the school was not going to play the sport because of the unacceptable level of risk related to a virus that kills almost nobody who is healthy, literally almost nobody who is healthy in the age range of a college football player. We've just completely lost our minds. We've just completely lost our minds. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? And this is a university saying this. And I believe that this is going to cause a whole bunch of other universities to do the same thing. And at this point, I believe that the best uh, possible, and I don't know but it's the best, but the, the most robust possible scenario for college football is that four major conferences, not including the Pac-12, the wussies here on the West Coast, they're not going to play especially after their players uh, basically unionized and said they're not going to play. But I believe that the best possible scenario, most robust possible scenario for football in college this year is four major conferences playing a limited conference schedule and then having a four-team playoff of those champions.
champions uh, for some semblance of a college football season. I'm not even sure that's going to happen, but that's that's the the by far uh, the most uh, that could possibly happen with regard to college football. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, we're living in such a strange situation. The stock market continues to go up. I do not understand it. It is almost where it was before uh, this whole thing began. Companies are continuing to lose lots of money. People are going to start losing their jobs in huge ways uh, and, and run out of unemployment now, although the, the Congress is still debating on what to do with that and, and whether or not to extend those benefits and, and how much to pay the American people. But the economic impact of this is going to be enormous and catastrophic. It's just a matter of when we pull the Band-Aid off. And yet somehow uh, the stock market is still doing exceedingly well for reasons that I, I do not fully understand. Uh, but um, but <laughs> we are headed for a very, very, very long uh, process here, regardless of what the data says, because it now appears as if the data is irrelevant. It now appears as if it, it really doesn't matter uh, whether or not uh, in most cases in, in this country, uh, you know, here in California, I, I, I'm now of the belief that we could have basically zero cases and zero deaths and they would not let us go back to normal. I really believe that because everyone is now invested in this narrative and they've had their taste of the blood of liberty and they they want their high and they're not going to uh, give up this opportunity to get it. And so I am exceedingly despondent about uh, where we're heading. Again, not necessarily from the virus's perspective, which I still believe in the next month or two, we could end up you know, hopefully in a, in a situation close to where Sweden is. I don't know that. That's my hope. I think it's plausible. It's going to take a while, but we could get there. Uh, but uh, politically, I just don't, I do not see uh, any way out of this, and I'm I'm very depressed about that. Uh, and so when I get depressed, I want to talk to people that I agree with and agree with me, and we're going to do that right now. Uh, the author of, of a brand new book about a, a subject I know quite a bit about. In fact, I'm quoted in the book uh, fairly extensively. Uh, that book is called The Drudge Revolution, and the author is. Matthew Lysak. So one of the uh, many people who are responsible for, in my opinion, the Trump administration is a guy by the name of Matt Drudge. And if you're a media follower, you know who Matt Drudge is. He's the person who founded the Drudge Report, which has had a massive impact on the nature of American media and on our politics. And as a guy who uh, I've actually had some connection to, I used to fill in Forum on his old national radio show, and I was very good friends with his right-hand man, Andrew Breitbart. And there is a brand new book out called The Drudge Revolution, the untold story of how talk radio, Fox News, and a gift shop clerk with an internet connection took down the mainstream media. And it is a book that, uh, for many reasons, I'm very interested in, partially because I am quoted extensively in the book. And the author of the book, Matthew Lysak, has decided that he's willing to do an interview with me, which was mildly surprising. <laughs> but uh, we're glad to have him on. Matthew, welcome to the podcast. Not only am I agreeing to do an interview, I'm honored to do an interview with you, John. So thank you for having me on. Well, I appreciate you lying about being honored. But uh, in, in all seriousness, um, you and I had uh, quite a few discussions about this topic uh, leading into the book. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is an incredibly important topic. That's why I agreed to speak to you and, and tell you about my insights or if, whether, whatever they may be into Matt Drudge and to the people around him and to his influence. But let's start with the, the biggest question as to why anyone should care. And it is my view, uh, as you already know, 
that uh, you can make a strong argument that Matt Drudge uh, played a very significant role in Barack Obama defeating Hillary Clinton in the 2008 Democratic primaries, uh, Mitt Romney winning the Republican nomination in 2012, and uh, with Donald Trump winning the Republican nomination in 2016 and also the presidency. Uh, that's, a, that's a hell of a lot of significance for one guy uh, with a website. Do you, what is your assessment uh, of, of my analysis there? Spot on, and I will take it a step further. I would say there's no single individual in our generation who's had more of an impact on the way we consume information as a society than Matt Drudge. And that's a big statement. So, so back it up. Tell me, tell me why you believe that. Well, there's several reasons. First of all, rarely when societal shifts occur can you actually point to the exact moment when it happened. And I would argue that in the case of Matt Drudge, you can. We got to the place we are in media largely from one specific moment when Matt Drudge was given a story about Monica Lewinsky and I mean, I think we're about the same age, John. So you remember in the early 90s and before, you basically had a handful of networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, and a handful of editors who all filtered the information that got to the public. There were people who made decisions on what we were, what information we had access to. In the case of Matt, he kind of hit this perfect storm with the Internet when Newsweek um, and Michael Isikoff did fantastic reporting on a story about an intern and the president of the United States. And there were decisions being made in Newsweek that had been made for generations about, does the public need to know this? How firm is the story? And we, we, we had access to such limited information. But when Matt got the story from Lucy Ann Goldberg, after Newsweek decided to spike it, it changed everything. And from that point forward, you can't hold a story. We're getting all the information. I would also say that I don't think, I think without this populist revolution in information, I don't think we have a President Trump. I don't think we have, for better or worse. But the importance of that moment can't be understated. And Matt was, right now we have all these different people online having all these different websites, but Matt was the first. And he was successful, and that changed the medium of information forever. And, and, and Matt, there's and no going back. I agree with that. And, and Matt has been perceived, at least until very recently, as the the leader of the right-wing conservative media. In fact, I, in the past, I've referred to him as the assignment editor for the conservative media. If it's on the Drudge Report, then you know that everybody in the conservative media is immediately going to jump on that story, specifically Fox News Channel, but uh, talk radio as well. And, and, and a large part of that uh, power resulted in Donald Trump going from a very long shot candidate in 2016 to someone who won the Republican nomination and obviously ended up uh, winning the presidency. And, and we've seen what has happened since then. So I want to talk specifically about his influence on Donald Trump becoming president. It, it, before Trump got in, I don't know, this seems like ancient history, uh, but as, as a longtime drudge watcher, uh, I was actually uh, feeling pretty decent about where drudge was on that campaign because it appeared as if 
he fancied Scott Walker, uh, the uh, former governor of Wisconsin, who I thought, you know, could be a really good candidate and geographically was well positioned to take on who I presumed was going to be Hillary Clinton as the Democratic nominee, as, as a, a longtime Republican, lifelong Republican. I, I wanted Hillary to be defeated. And then as soon as Donald Trump got in, everything changed. And, ju- and Drudge jumped on that bandwagon and really jump-started that bandwagon in a huge way at a critical moment when a, a, the metaphor I've used is, you know, the taking off of a, of, a, of a rocket ship or an airplane. You have to get flight. If Trump doesn't get flight and doesn't get taken seriously at first, then none of this happens. And Drudge w- played a very key role in making that happen for Donald Trump. Can you tell us about what you know about that process, why it happened, and how that relationship evolved. Yeah, you're you're spot on. So every campaign, serious campaign for the president, has had somebody on staff since the the late 90s, somebody known as a drudge whisperer. And this is a campaign staffer whose main task was to form a relationship and hopefully influence the drudge report. Early on, the Trump campaign made a, a what I view as a really smart decision, they put Jared Kushner in on that role. And I think it was smart because Kushner was a newspaper guy. He ran the New York Observer, and he understood the power of the Drudge Report. And they formed this really powerful alliance where Kushner and campaign staffers, and I had access to emails from Matt to the campaign, some of which I put in the book, would email Matt Drudge, uh, for instance, a picture that said, uh, don't bring in the rapist. And then Matt would post it, and then it would circulate through the conservative blogosphere. It would be spawning 100 articles, and the cycle would repeat itself. Now, in Drudge's importance to getting <laughs> Trump's I mean, Drudge's uh, importance to getting Trump through the primaries into the general election can't be understated. I, I, I look at uh, Ted Cruz, and he gave several interviews where he, he mentioned the fact that without Matt Drudge, there would be no Donald Trump, and I, I believe that. I believe that. I believe that he was the he was the that Matt Drudge giving the okay to Donald Trump on the Drudge Report signaled to the conservative base that he's okay, that we can accept him, that he's a serious candidate. And, then and without there, that, he would be a French player. I I agree with that, and and let's just go a little deeper into this because there was an astroturfing effect here, where the more that Drudge promoted Trump, the more popular Trump became, and then that enabled Drudge to further promote him, specifically even with these post-debate polls. The people who who followed this carefully may still remember that, I mean, it almost became comical, and in retrospect, we now know why, uh, that every time there was a Republican debate in the 2016 uh, campaign, immediately uh, Drudge would put up a poll who won the debate. And, you know, it would be like uh, Saddam Hussein reelection numbers uh, for, for Donald Trump. And we now know that that was not on the up and up, correct? Look, if I put a poll up, John, that says killing kittens is bad. I can't get 90% of the people to sign it. You know, I agree. It, it, you, if you ever see 90% of the public agreeing to something, it's, it's a phony poll, because you, you just can't do it, and, and pollsters will tell you this. Uh, yeah, it was a, the, the post-debate polling was, a, was paid for, 
and uh, it, you know, it, it got the desired result. Polling generally today, I don't believe, is used to inform the public. It's used more to kind of mold public perception. Now, let's be clear you, you, what you just said there. It was paid for. The, the, the yeah. Drudge Report was paid by, by whom? By the Trump campaign? Um, actually, the Drudge Report wasn't paid. Uh, the campaign hired a consulting firm to work with work within the barrier within the guide the framework of the polling to get the desired results. They understood that they can't get through the primaries without Matt Drudge and the support of the Drudge Report. So, if they could make the rest of the public believe the the rest of Matt Drudge's followers believe that look, all the Drudge readers are polling for Donald Trump, they believed it would have an impact. And I I think, you know, I think it worked. Oh, it absolutely worked because it created this perception among the Republican base, which viewed certainly at the time the Drudge Report as as almost the the Bible, if you will. I mean, if it's if it's on there, you know, it's been approved uh, by by you know Republicans or conservatives. That's the that's our take. And then of course that gets amplified by Fox News Channel in a huge way and talk radio. And so there's this echo chamber, and so. The, the, that's what I meant by astroturfing. The perception of popularity then creates popularity, especially, yeah. especially in a situation where Trump was such an uh, unprecedented candidate. I mean, we, we had really nothing to compare him to. So everyone's kind of looking around going, is this for real? Is, is, can he make this work? Should we be taking him seriously? And let's be clear that, that Drudge uh, influences not just his readership, but clearly has a massive uh, influence, and there's a symbiotic relationship here with people like Ann Coulter, uh, like Rush Limbaugh, uh, Sean Hannity. And, uh, and so I guess I'm curious from that standpoint, based upon your research for this book, The Drudge Revolution, which came first there, the chicken or the egg, or was it a little bit of both with regard to those people I just mentioned and Drudge getting on board the Trump chain, train? It was Drudge. Drudge was first. Uh, I went back through Nexus Lexic, Nexus, and, and Trump just wasn't taken seriously um, in, until until Matt Drudge began flying the flag. And you can go, you can look, go back and look at after Ted Cruz won Colorado. Check out the Drudge report. You would think he lost it. You would think he got crushed. And it was that kind of coverage that was. It wasn't dishonest in, in terms of the stories that were being aggregated and posted online, but it was what Matt did, what, one of his specialties is, is he was able to frame the issue by selectively finding stories that advocated a certain viewpoint he was pushing. And the viewpoint of that moment was Donald Trump is the historic character. Donald Trump's the only one that can fix the country. And let's be clear about the impact that that has. It's again, it's not just influencing readers. One of the 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 what I call the magic of Drudge is that back, especially back in this era, it seems like a long time ago now. Uh, but uh, when Drudge makes it clear that he's going in a particular direction, it creates a market, a literal market for stories that fit his narrative because if you if you see that drudge likes a certain play on a story like trump's you know the guy 
And that means that if you write a story, Trump's the guy, there's a far better chance you're going to get linked on the Drudge Report, which if that happens, you've just hit your quota for for uh, clicks for a week or a month or maybe longer, depending on your outlet, correct? Oh, that's absolutely correct. I, I can't tell you. I know editors who cultivate stories and frame them in such a way just to appeal to the Drudge Report, because as newspapers print editions have begun declining and they become increasingly dependent on online revenue, Matt's importance has only grown in that respect. So, right, you get you get a link on the Drudge Report. I can, I, I can tell you stories. I remember covering a story in Aurora, Colorado, um, the Batman shooter, and I got a story linked as the main story on Drudge, and my editor sent me back a picture of them all toasting wine towards me. And it was because of the cash flowing in from all the traffic being directed to the New York Daily News. And this creates a massive incentive. People know it. It's like a gravitational pull or a magnet. And if Drudge likes a particular narrative, people are going to give him that narrative. And so it has this multiplier effect across the media, because the media in this in this era, especially when the business model is broken, and let's be clear about that, the, the traditional media's business model is totally busted, and therefore yeah. and therefore they have to they have to run after every scrap they can from the table, even if it's an artificial clicks uh, on on the internet. It doesn't matter how true it is, how right or wrong it is, how good or bad for the country it is. And, and therefore, if they can get a, a link on Drudge, it's worth it to them. I, I, I often joke, taking this out of the political, I mean, you know, Matt Drudge has made it clear he's terrified of robots. Uh, so, and, 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 and so this creates a market for stories about how terrifying robots are uh, because they get, they get linked on the Drudge Report. I mean, and, and so when we see it happen with Trump, uh, it has you know, far greater consequences because in this particular situation, it, without a doubt, without a doubt, without Matt Drudge, Donald Trump is not the Republican nominee in 2016 and he's not president of the United States. We, we don't know if that means Hillary would be president or maybe Marco Rubio or somebody else, but, but uh, clearly Trump would not be president. We probably would be in a very, very different place in the world right now uh, if this had not happened. Now, what's, what's particularly interesting about this, though, um, is the motivation. And, you know, I've always been a contrarian with regard to what Matt's motivations really are, having some insight uh, through my friendship with his right-hand man, Andrew Breitbart. What did you find out and and what are your conclusions about what Matt's uh, motivations are in general and why it is that he decided that he would effectively uh, be the PR firm for the Trump campaign in 2016? This is a great question. When I began this project, I assumed that Matt Drudge was a conservative, slightly with with libertarian leaning. And you were one of the first interviews I did, John. And you, you when you told me, blew my mind. You you spoke of Andrew Breitbart and your friendship with him, and how there was a period of time when then Senator Barack Obama was trying to punch through the primaries, and. Breitbart saw the danger of this and began posting Reverend Wright stories and other stories a little more negative towards uh, Obama. And Matt, from whatever remote location he was on, would, would take him off and replace him with something more favorable. 
And, you know, it became very obvious. And, and you, you were the first person to tell me, but since, you know, after interviewing you, I've inter- interviewed over 200 people for this book. People who knew Andrew and who knew Matt again and again would tell me that, no, no, people get the Drudge Report wrong. It's, he's not a, politic, a political ideologue. In his personal life, he has his convictions, but at the end of the day, Matt George is going to always do what is best for his website or what he thinks is best, and everything's a monetary calculation. And just to be clear, and, I, and, I, and this is obviously an issue cl- very close to my life and, and, and my heart, really, because of my, my relationship with Andrew, and I've taken a lot of heat for my very consistent, ever since Obama, uh, just after he got elected, when I started talking about this and people got very upset at me. They got, I mean, I took a lot of heat for for making this allegation that Drudge was effectively in the tank for Bar- for Barack Obama against Hillary Clinton in the 2008 uh, presidential election. Just to be clear, you uh, your research has shown that my view on that has been vindicated. Is that a fair assessment? Vindicated one thousand percent. It's and it, you know it's, it it makes sense. And this isn't a slap at at Matt. It's you know almost to his credit, uh, business wise, he's a genius. Look at look at how much he's worth. Uh, published reports estimate his net worth at north of a hundred million dollars, and. Matt didn't begin because he was a true believer in any political cause. Matt began doing Hollywood gossip. That was what he was. What the Drudge Report was born out of. People forget this. They link him to a political ideology because his big break was with Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. Right, uh, and. And and you get into great detail in the book, and you quote me a few times about this whole Obama-Clinton thing, which is, you know, to most people sounds crazy because it goes against everything they think they know about Matt Drudge. But but it's not just being backed up by other people who have ha- had uh, you know similar perceptions and have spoken to, to Andrew Breitbart at the time, but also your research into the 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 website itself because you can the archives are there it's anyone can see yeah. it uh, it's clear as day that what I told you is exactly what happened and that it had a major impact for for some of the same reasons we've already discussed which is and the, way, the best way I describe it and it's actually in the book is that when in the middle of those controversies that could have taken Barack Obama out in 2008. The, the rest of the media was able to look at Matt Drudge and go, well, gee, if even Matt Drudge, the, the, the guy who you know brought us Monica Lewinsky, doesn't think that the Reverend Jeremiah Wright story is legitimate enough to make uh, even let on his website, then why should we bother with this? We don't want this story. We, we love this guy, Obama. He's great for box office. We like his politics. He's new. He's exciting. Hillary is old and boring. Why? We don't want this story. So, so Drudge is actually giving us a, a plausible deniability for why we're going to ignore that. You, you, I assume you you see the, the validity in that perspective. Yeah, of course, and it came from you, but I also, don't forget, in, in my book, I have people from the inside. Joseph Curl, who was the first real full-time employee who was uh, on payroll, Andrew was paid, you know, by month, but Joseph Curl cooperated with this book, and he, on the record, went through the nuts and bolts of how the Drudge Report worked, and 
it's not how people think. People just, they have the wrong impression. And it's an impression that Matt really tried to create as part of his mystique. Mm-hmm. Well, I also think it's not just money. Money is a, obviously a big motivator for everybody. I think Matt loves chaos. I, I really do. Yeah. I, 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 you, you agree with that? Oh, have you? <laughs> Any flashpoint of time in the past 25 years to go on his site, you would think that we were close to the apocalypse, that mm-hmm. we were right on the brink. And it, it's driven page clicks. Like, it's worked mm-hmm. for him. And and just be, before we leave my my role my small role in your book, uh, I do want to clarify one thing, and that and that is that, and I want people to read the book. I, but when they read it, there is one quote from me that there appears to be a typographical error that it's associated or, or attributed to me that I didn't say it. So could you just be on the record and and and, oh, and correct that? Yeah, and and again, sorry, John, there was a typo, and I misattributed a quote that was actually to one of another one of Andrew's friends and I attributed it to you concerning the Matt Drudge paper play scheme that happened with the Drudge Report. Okay. Well it it, it I think it's on page one sixty eight and so it, it says Ziegler said it. I didn't say it. I knew immediately like, wait a minute, I don't even know anything about that subject, so it could couldn't have you been me. I did not say it and, and I apologize. Somewhere mm-hmm. in my editing and our twelve editors that went through this we missed this. Okay, no problem. I'm just I just wanted to correct the record. All right. So with regard to let's go back to Drudge and Trump. So what was your view or what is your view on why Drudge decided to go all in for Trump? And what is your view about how that how his perspective on Trump has obviously dramatically changed? And now he's effectively uh, part of the Biden uh, PR team. So, so g- give us your view of, on, on that evolution uh, of perspective from Matt Drudge and Donald Trump. Sure. The reason Matt was for Trump is the same reason he's against Trump now. It's, he thinks it's best for his website. And I, I get asked all the time, oh, my gosh, why is Matt Drudge taking this political switch? He, he isn't. This is who he's always been. And if you really go through the site, you'll see that Matt isn't loyal to any political ideology or party. He's loyal to his website. And the question I find interesting is, is this going to work? Because we're not in, in 2005 anymore. Social media has taken a huge bite out of Matt's page views and influence. Um, when, I was, when I was reporting at the New York Daily News, my editors would be constantly refreshing the Drudge Report. And it, it wasn't because they had any sort of affinity towards Matt personally. It was because Matt was first, always. He was always ahead. He never missed anything. Those days are over. Twitter's first. And it's, it's actually not even close. So Matt's hemorrhaging readers a little bit, despite what he is touting. It's, it's not getting the same eyeballs. And he's making a real political risk here, because if Matt continues his coverage the way it, it's been going and Trump does win re-election, it will forever end the narrative of Matt Drudge as political kingmaker. That will be gone. Well, I agree with you that Twitter has effectively ended the Drudge era 
because Twitter trends are now what used to be the, the what was on the the Drudge Report. Uh, um, I mean, I know for myself, I heart. I mean, I, I stopped watching Drudge a long time ago because I realized he, he's a fraud and uh, and for all the reasons that are that are in your book. But I also don't even bother with it very much now because I don't think it has nearly anywhere close to the same kind of influence. Because there's now a thousand or just ten thousand Matt Drudges, uh, people who are verified on Twitter and whatever is creating the, the Twitter trend of the moment is effectively what used to be the the Drudge Report. So I I'm, I am a little bit confused or maybe curious as to why he has made such a dramatic turn against Trump. Now it could be based in fact or reality. That's I guess possible. Uh, you know I'm I'm not happy with the Trump presidency either. But um, but, you know, I, I don't know that he's going to have that much influence in in Biden winning. Is it possible, Matthew, that he has decided that that's what the result is going to be? And so therefore uh, he he's just making a bet that he's going to be on that winning side. What do you make of that theory? Yeah, I, I think that's a great theory. And I also let me let me ask you, John, would you be completely shocked if. Come October 15th, Matt's coverage swings all over again. If the poll numbers look a little better for Trump, like would, would that shock you? If all of a sudden he's the, the website is pro-Trump? Um, no, because we've already seen this exact phenomenon. Uh, you and I have yeah. not. If you, if, I don't know if we, we talked about this or not, but at the very end of 2008, once. Uh, it was clear, and this is my theory, but it's, it, I think the facts back me up. Once it was clear that uh, Obama was going to beat McCain, if you look back, I bet you have, those last couple of weeks before the, the actual election uh, was much more pro-McCain, anti-Obama. It, it was obvious that Matt uh, knew that Obama was going to win, and he was setting himself up as the the source of the anti-Obama movement news. And my gosh, you know, it worked like a charm for Matt Drudge. Matt Drudge made an enormous amount of money from the Obama administration because that's exactly what he was, which I found to be rather ironic and infuriating because I still believe he played a key role in why Obama got elected in the first place. Uh, and so I can see a similar scenario where if he's, uh, confident that Biden's going to win. Uh, one, he loves drama, right? So, I mean, you know, and I can see the entire media following this narrative. If, if Biden is still up by 10 points with two weeks left yeah, and there's no drama, there's going to be a market for, hey, this ain't over yet, right? I mean, that because that's the number one thing that drives interest is, is drama. Uh, and so I can also see Drudge trying to reestablish his bona fides as, hey, you know, I, I wasn't uh, in favor of this. You know, we, 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 we were we were pro-Trump till the end and it just didn't work. And now now he can go back to being you know, anti-Democrat as as Biden and Democrats take control of everything. That that's that to me is is a plausible scenario. You. Of course. And conservative media, your audience should be very skeptical of some of these outlets because very rarely is there a scenario where they don't do better under a Democrat liberal in the Oval Office. And 
that's you know Rush Limbaugh's rise, and that doesn't mean they're being inauthentic. I I think it's I think generally they're they're not inauthentic because they don't have as much influence uh, to actually shape the narrative. But Matt Drudge did, and he understood that. And all these conservative outlets always do much better under Clinton, under Obama, than they would under a more conservative president. Because, you know, it's, 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 just, it's just one of those facts of life that when you can grumble about something on defense, you, you, you get more eyeballs, like you could tune in. When the Republicans and the conservatives hold the House, the, the Oval Office and the Senate, it's, it's, it's harder to get an audience. And you, you probably know that better than, than most. It works in and both. Matt, it, Matt really knew that. It works in both directions. I mean, MSNBC did not do well during the Obama administration, uh, exactly, and and, and CNN uh, the, the same way uh, for slightly different reasons. And so this is this is the maybe the number one thing people do not understand about uh, opinion based quote unquote uh, news outlets. Uh, they don't want to win elections. Winning elections, <laughs> winning winning elections is bad. Uh, I mean, I, I you know I tried to write. I had a book proposal out in 2011 about how the conservative media was going to take a dive on Obama in 2012. I called a business not a cause, but I wasn't a celebrity, and and even though I had a good book agent, uh, we didn't get any bites. Uh, even though I think I, I was I was right about that. I mean, the the, the conservative media loved having Barack Obama. Uh, as as president and and Matt Drudge more than anyone else. I mean, I, I can't even I doubt there's an individual in the media who made more money directly because of Barack Obama's eight years than Matt Drudge. I mean, would you agree with that? I I'd be hard pressed to find one. Exactly. Yeah. And then and then, you know, that's why I'm always confused why people are questioning Matt's motive. Like they're and it's not sinister. Um, he's a businessman. A lot of these people are, and and that's okay. Mm-hmm. But the audience should just know what they're looking at. All right. Well, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't at least ask about uh, my former friend, Andrew Breitbart. Andrew Breitbart, of course, uh, died very suddenly uh, several years ago. Unfortunately, uh, he died when we were at an impasse in our relationship and we're no longer friends for reasons that actually came out of the 2008 uh, election and and his unwillingness to go public uh, with what he knew about Matt Drudge being in the tank for Barack Obama. There were other issues as well. Uh, he's a guy who um, I also think is is largely misunderstood. Uh, I had a lot of respect for him in many ways and, and had problems with him in other ways. Tell us about your assessment of of Andrew Breitbart, uh, who was Drudge's right-hand man for many years in this book, The Drudge Revolution. I don't think Andrew gets nearly as much credit as he deserves for his place in the conservative movement. He's regarded now, in retrospect by a lot of people, as a rabble-rouser. And, you know, his name on Breitbart.com also, I think, hinges who he really was. Uh, Andrew Breitbart, the, the person that people knew who, who were kind enough to speak to me, was disgusted by race baiting of all kinds. And he, his mind worked a thousand miles an hour. So he was great for the Drudge Report because he could, when you're an editor at the Drudge Report, you're getting thousands of emails over and over again. And you really need to make a split second decision by just reading the subject line. So he was able to do that, 
for, you know, seven, eight straight hours at a clip. And he, he, he said he had ADHD, but in this, in, in this environment, it really helped him. And he was able to do this very skilled placement of stories that made Matt's website for years was part of what grew its popularity. You know, Andrew was there from the very, very beginning. Before there was an actual website, Andrew and Matt met at Andrew's future mother-in-law's house, um, Orson Bean and Allie Mills in, in Venice, Venice canal in, in in los angeles and you know that moment seemed sort of magical to me in retrospect because it was these, these two really sharp minds talking about the future of media and they saw this opportunity with the internet and for the next 15 plus years on and off they were this unstoppable team that did something that i don't i don't i don't i think it was a real true american story in terms of the unique nature of these two individuals able to flip over an entire industry. But Andrew was not a, a, not a small part of that at all. And I agree with that, and uh, I think your assessment of, of his role in that is, is very a- accurate. I, I saw it firsthand uh, many, many, many times. He was in many ways a genius. Uh, but I also believe that uh, and this, you know, I have no medical backing for this, but I, I believe that this life that the Drudge Report led him towards caused his death. I, I think that he ended up living a ridiculously stressful life uh, with enormous uh, financial burdens because he effectively, in my view, bit off more than he could chew uh, from a from a business standpoint. And eventually his body just gave out. Do uh, you have an opinion on that? Yeah, you're, you're spot on. He was in debt tremendously. He was being severely underpaid by Matt. And people would be shocked by how little, little Andrew was being paid. Sometimes he'd get a check for as little as $2,000 in the course of a month. And this is living in Los Angeles. And Matt at the time was worth millions upon millions of dollars. And Andrew was just trying. Andrew wasn't. Andrew and Matt were very different in this other aspect too. Where Andrew was a true believer in his form of conservatism. There wasn't a part of him that was insincere about that. And I think that when people look back on Andrew's time at the Drudge Report, they should realize that it wasn't just Matt Drudge. It was Andrew Breitbart too. And one of the many things that pains me about. All that has happened here, and there are many, many things that pain me, uh, is the notion that Breitbart.com ends up being at the forefront of the pro-Trump movement and uh, and almost a, a part of the, well, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it was almost literally a part of the Trump campaign as Steve Bannon uh, took it over for Andrew Breitbart. And I, I, don't, uh, I don't believe that uh, at first... Andrew Breitbart would have at all been a Trump supporter. Now, I think that because I knew Andrew exceedingly well, I think I knew Andrew as well as anybody uh, outside of his, his uh, immediate family, because I, I, I'm a pretty decent read of people. And I and I when I get in a foxhole with someone, I can figure them out pretty quickly. I do believe that Andrew would have flipped very soon once he realized all his friends had flipped and been uh, pro-Trump because he would he would never have wanted to be left behind the station. He would have gotten on that train. I don't know exactly at what stage, but he would have gotten on that train. 
But the idea that forever his name is going to be associated more with Donald Trump than almost anything he ever did, uh, you know, in life, uh, is 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 very uh, depressing to me. Uh, what what do you make of that issue? I spoke to several former employees at Breitbart. One of them being Ben Shapiro, who echoed your exact sentiment that Matt would have the, his contention was that the Andrew he knew would have been absolutely disgusted by the direction he saw Breitbart going after his after his death. And you know, we we go full full circle back to Matt Drudge here because following Andrew's death, death Breitbart.com was not doing well financially and became extremely dependent on links from the Drudge Report. So moving into the 2016 election, Breitbart knew if they wanted to get links, they needed to support Trump as well. They had other reasons for supporting Trump, but that had to be the financial incentive can't, can't be ignored as well. I agree with that, and that goes into a lot of things that we we already talked about. Uh, what do you make of the theory? We've, we've not discussed this. What do you make of the theory? And, and this is maybe me just being a delusional optimist that likes to think that there's something good in people, uh, and so maybe I'm misinterpreting this. But I found it very interesting that Matt Drudge was leading the charge to torpedo Steve Bannon, and uh, I've always felt that that was a little bit of him getting back at Bannon for taking uh, essentially credit for Breitbart uh, away from, from Andrew himself. What, what do you make of that theory? It's, it's plausible. I have a part in my book where Bannon is overheard in the Breitbart offices telling fellow employees that he owns Matt Drudge, that he doesn't need Drudge links, that, that, he's, that they're bigger. And this got back to Matt. One of the employees emailed Matt, the, the verbatim conversation. After that, Matt Drudge isn't somebody who doesn't hold grudges. He holds grudges <laughs> for a very long time. I spoke to countless friends of his from the 90s. Each one of them, no, nobody still talks to him. Like I think Ann Coulter is a real rarity on somebody who's kept a relationship with Matt for the, the duration, but... Matt's circle of people is very, 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 very small. And partially it's because of these perceived slights. He takes everything extremely personally. And in the case of Bannon, that was it for him. From that point forward, he didn't trust him. Okay, so maybe it had nothing to do with uh, revenge for Andrew, but uh, I, it, didn't, it did not surprise me uh, when, uh, when Matt Drudge led the charge to take out Steve Bannon. Uh, anything else that we, you know, we, we really think people should know about your, your book? Sure. I, I think that the story that I found most interesting about Matt was he came from absolute squalor in terms of a family life. Matt, Matt's mom was suffering from severe mental health issues, and his dad disowned him. No education. I think he finished 355th out of 365 students in his graduating class. So uh, my story chronicles his rise, but we also get this inside narrative from many people who knew Matt, including Clinton staffers who formed relationships with Matt. And I I mentioned Joseph Curl, but Curl told me something I found fascinating, which was Matt said to to Curl when he sat down, when when Joseph sat down to operate the drug report, he said, 
The Drudge Report is not about riding waves. At the Drudge Report, we create waves. And then we put the story up. Rush Limbaugh will talk about it in his A block. The White House uh, press corps will be harassing the spokesperson at 2.30 Eastern time. And it'll, it'll form into 400 other stories. And by then, we're off of it. And we're on to the next thing. And I tell that story because Matt's whole goal is to shape narrative. And he's successfully done that up until this point. But right now, we're at this moment where we've pitted Matt Drudge's legions of loyal listeners or readers. Some of them have been with Matt for decades. Pitting them against these Trump followers who just several months ago were all drinking water out of the same well. And it set up this collision course. And and something has to give. You know, I... I didn't expect to ask you this question because I, th- I thought we were ending this, but it just occurred to me something that, that really uh, upsets me and, and ticks me off to a certain degree. If Matt was really an ideologue and wasn't doing this uh, you know, for reasons that are, are beyond all of our full comprehension, and you mentioned his libertarian leanings, it ticks me off that Matt Drudge is not leading the charge against what I believe to be an oppressive, an oppressive government reaction to the coronavirus. He has chosen to be full in on the scare and the fear and done nothing at all to uh, to combat uh, this this what I perceive to be uh, very dangerous, almost fascist uh, government reaction to this. And if he was leading that charge, it would create cover for other people to do the same. And instead, we're now living in this almost Orwellian 1984 world where you're only allowed one story of the virus and it's everyone should be scared out of their minds. Uh, what do you make of that take? Well, what I can make of it, John, is that you're not alone. And millions of Matt's former readers who've been loyal to him for decades, have gone to other sites, and that's a con- that's a consequence of his decision to move in this direction. So you're you're really your your fingers on the pulse right now of what a lot of conservatives are are feeling. Well, unfortunately, we don't have anybody. I mean, Matt. The one thing that Matt did was he did create a room and cover for a lot of us to be able to express our opinions. And, you know, I, I found it myself, uh, you know, as a, as a writer uh, for, for Mediate, where my uh, ability to, to talk about uh, stories from a contrarian view are greatly curtailed right now. And I'm not sure that would be the case if Drudge was all in. If, if, if only... For the idea that, hey, you know, if you write something, uh, you know, against the government uh, lockdown, you might get linked on Drudge. It would create a market for it. And and there is yeah. no there is no market for that. And so that, to me, you know, might be the, I'm actually maybe more ticked off at him for that than I am for the whole Trump thing. <laughs> Although that's that's that, that's a tough competition. But anyway. Um, all right. Well, as I, Matthew, I really appreciate your time. The book is is great. I highly recommend it. It's called The Drudge Revolution. The author is Matthew Lyshak. And uh, thank you so much for your time, Matthew. Thank you for having me, John. Thank you to Matthew Lyshak for his time and his book. I urge you to get it. 
Once again, the Drudge Revolution. Uh, final thoughts here on this uh, episode of the podcast. The uh, polling on the presidential race is still dreadful for Trump, other than Rasmussen, his favorite pollster. And so I'm not going to change my uh, percentage of the chances of uh, Trump winning. Uh, I, the biggest thing that is going to happen in the next few days, certainly within the next week, is that Joe Biden is going to pick his vice presidential nominee. It's the most important uh, choice of a pre vice presidential nominee, uh, maybe in the history of the country, uh, for various reasons. I have been hopeful. At first, I have been hopeful that it would be Amy Klobuchar. That's not going to happen because she's white. You're not allowed to have a white woman uh, anymore. They have to have a, a black woman, a woman of color. Uh, I then was hoping that maybe Val Demings, the Democratic congresswoman, former police chief uh, from Florida, would be the choice. It does not appear as if she's in the final list of the top three, which is all too typical and rather depressing. If I had to guess at this point, I would say it would be Kamala Harris, uh, which is going to be uh, infuriating from my perspective because I'm going to have to watch all these former never-Trump Republicans who used to be my friends, who I now have disdain for, telling everyone how great Kamala Harris is, which is just unbelievable. It's just flat-out ridiculous. But that's where we are. Uh, so we'll, maybe by the next time we do an episode, we'll be able to talk about who Joe Biden has actually chosen and what the impact of that will be. But as for now, I'm going to keep the chances of, of Donald Trump winning re-election at a pretty conservative. It might be lower than this, but I'm going to, I'm going to keep it at a pretty conservative 10%. Until next time, please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual, the number one pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Until next week, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.